welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Excellent. Well, we are in the midst of a series, or actually coming very much to the end of it, coming into land, really, in a series called No Ordinary Family. It's, we've been going through the book of Ruth. And we've been unpacking a whole bunch of stuff over the last, well, six, uh, this is the sixth week because I'm about to do part 11 of this series. And I, I've really certainly enjoyed it both from up here but also from down there just hearing what everyone's had to share. I think it's been a, a challenging and inspiring series and it's just great. And I trust that you're ready to hear this morning and ready to take on board uh, what I've got to share. And I'm just going to ask God's Holy Spirit to help us because at the end of the day I've got some good principles I think there's some great things we can learn from this particular passage but just information isn't going to change us it's really about the Holy Spirit taking that information and helping us to live it out bring it to our remembrance at the, at the appropriate times etc you know the, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and I'm trusting that what we share from this pulpit is giving the Holy Spirit something to bring to our remembrance at the appropriate time that our lives can be changed so can I pray for you just before I start to share this morning Yeah? Good, good. Well, Father, I just thank you for this wonderful bunch of people here. I thank you, Lord, that our presence here says that we we want to become more like you. We want to know you. We want to live for you. We want to know about you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you take these words that I'm about to share today and would you just take them deeply into our spirit, Lord? May they not just be knowledge accumulated, but may they be life to us and life to others as we put them into practice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. Well, I'm going to quickly try and run through the book of Ruth so far. You've heard it. You should just know this book backwards by now, hey? You've heard it so many times. You know, we start off with with a a guy called Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. They're living in Bethlehem, but there's a famine in the land. Israel has been not good in in terms of its um, representing God on the earth. And so God has had to bring punishment. One of the ways he did that was through famine. And so these guys are doing it tough and they think, maybe if we go to Moab, things will get better. So they take their two sons, they head to Moab. The only problem is that things don't get better, they get worse immediately. Elimelech dies. And leaves his wife there with two sons um, to to live in a strange land. Things start to get a little bit better when the two boys get married. But after 10 years or so, things take a turn for the worse again because both of the boys die. We now have a family that consists of three widows. Things look up in Israel. Uh, Naomi gets the news. She decides to head back to the place of her birth, her homeland. And Ruth decides to follow her there. They head back to Bethlehem. They get there. In the, in the season where the harvest is, is just being collected. And so Ruth finds herself in the fields gleaning. She's, she doesn't have a job per se, but because of the laws of Israel, she was permitted to go into fields and work along behind the workers and pick up whatever they left behind. Okay, So she was able to eke out a living for herself and Naomi through that circumstance. The field she happened to work in was a guy, the field of a, a guy named Boaz. And Boaz was a great guy and he treated her very kindly. And it turns out that he was actually... Um, a, a relative of Naomi's and, um, and, and that had some implications which we'll look at in just a moment and so after some time Naomi um, mentions to Ruth that there's a possibility that this man could be a, become a, a greater part in their life and maybe she should consider marrying him and so she hatches a plan Ruth and, and Cass spoke about that last week in, a, in an awesome uh, message called Matchmaker, which I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to listen to if you haven't already done so, or to listen to a game. There's some vital keys in that message. And we see that um, 
Ruth does everything she says. She approaches um, Boaz in, in, late in the night. And one of the customs was that if you were, as a woman, making yourself known to a man that you would be happy to be asked to be married by him, one of the things that you, would do, you could do is, is um, lift up the covers off his feet and lay at his feet. And if he was willing for that um, relationship to go further, he would cover her over and as a sign of acceptance. And Sez spoke last week about the fact that love covers. And he looked at some of the things that, that, um, that uh, Boaz did in response to Ruth, his righteous response to Ruth's uh, invitation, if you like. Okay, he didn't take advantage of the situation, but um, he responded righteously in that situation. And so that's pretty much where we're up to now. We've just come through. That um, They've spent the night together, not, not um, in the way that some people would spend the night together. It's been a, a night of purity. It's been a night where they've discussed the situation as it stands. And uh, basically, the reason that Naomi suggested that, Boaz go to, uh, that Ruth go to Boaz was because he was what is termed a kinsman redeemer. Okay, basically, God's law back then was very specific in terms of family responsibilities. If a man died, his closest family members became responsible for the family. They became responsible for the protection and provision of the family. They became responsible to, uh, to make sure that the family lands stayed within the family. And if there were no children involved, they became responsible to actually carry on the man's family name and make sure that he was not forgotten in terms of Israel's lineage. And so that, in this case, would be the marrying of this lady... And the having of children with her in order that the dead man's family line could be continued and there would be someone to inherit the family lands and whatever else there was to inherit. Okay, so you got that? Now that, that particular role is this, this term that we've heard several times as we've read through the book, this kinsman redeemer role, which is a bit of an ancient term, bit of an un, something a little bit hard to get your, your head around. I prefer perhaps the term the family saviour. Okay, or the family guardian. Okay, he was the person who was going to rescue this, this family in distress. Now, as I've already mentioned, Boaz was actually willing to take up that responsibility. But the fact is it actually wasn't his responsibility to take up. There was actually someone else who had that responsibility, another guy. And tonight, or this morning, the, the title of my message is actually The Other Guy. Okay, The Other Guy. I mean, it seems fairly obvious at this point that God is involved in this relationship. We've looked at you know, God's providence. We've looked at all the things that just happened to take place along the way. And you would have to say, circumstantially, that, that God seemed to be in this relationship, this potential marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And suddenly, this other guy is on the scene. And this morning, I want to have a look at how Boaz responds to the challenge of this other guy being around. And I want to pick up the story. I'm going to read it from the message in... Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. This is after he'd promised Ruth that, that basically by that afternoon, by lunchtime that day, she would be engaged or married one way or the other. It would either be him or it would be the other guy. So he sets off to get things moving. So before long, the closer relative or the kinsman redeemer, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz, take a seat. The man sat down. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say old friend. It just sort of says so-and-so. What's his name? What's his face? It's, like a, it's almost like a derogatory term because this guy's name has been removed from biblical history because he really is a disgrace in that he didn't take up his responsibility like he should have. He should have already had um, an awareness and been involved in Ruth's life, but he just totally left it to Boaz. 
So anyway, Boaz then gathered 10 of the town elders together and they beat the guy severely. No, they didn't. Perhaps they should have, but they didn't. They said, sit down with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to this relative, this piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back. Uh, I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so that I'll know where I stand. You're first in line to do this, and I'm next after you. He said, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realise, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the Redeemer responsibility to have children with her and to carry on the family inheritance. Then the relative said, I can't do that. I jeopardise my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You have my rights. You can do it. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business matters regarding matters of property. An inheritance. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by pulling off his shoe. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square that day. You are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Marlon, including responsibility for Ruth the foreigner, the widow of Marlon. I will take her as my wife. And keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from this hometown. To all this, you are witnesses this very day. All the people in the town square that day backing up the elders said, Yes, yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into a household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. With the, children God gives, uh, with the children God gives you from this woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah. What we basically learn, or I guess the, the scenario we have here, is that in order to walk the path that God seems to have for us, and sometimes it's clearer than other times, but Sometimes there are going to be obstacles in the way. And so I want to have a look today at just some of Boaz's responses. I think it's been just great looking at some of his responses. He truly is a righteous man and a great example to learn from. But I want to have a look at some of his responses today as to how he deals with this opposition, this obstacle, this fly in the ointment, if you like, this other guy who is potentially going to mess things up for him and Ruth. And if I go back into the last chapter in verse... um, 12 and 13 of Ruth uh, chapter 3, we see that the first thing he does is I've got that, Ruth, uh, that Boaz is open-handed. He says to Ruth, there's a kinsman ne- redeemer that is nearer than I. If he wants to redeem, let him do so. And he then says that if he doesn't, I swear by God, I will redeem you. Okay, so it's interesting that he's somehow in the midst of this relationship um, he's perhaps been a little bit slow off the mark, but he's maintained enough emotional distance, he's maintained enough physical distance to not be so caught up in this whole thing, so hormonally driven or so emotionally driven that, that he um, is not aware of what the right thing to do is anymore. And so he, he says, look, this is, we need to do this thing the right way, essentially. 
And so he makes known that there's this other guy and he's going to give him first chance to actually redeem Ruth. And possibly, you know, this other guy, we don't know about the other guy. We know that, um, as we heard last week, that, that Boaz was a man who maybe, you know, wasn't considered to be the best catch around for whatever reason. Okay, he seemed to be later in life and for some reason he was not married. You can, I guess, use your imaginations to think why, but, but maybe the other guy was better looking. Maybe the other guy was wealthier. Maybe there's a whole other, lot of things going on in the other guy's life that made him seemingly a better catch. And so he doesn't want to um, ruin Ruth's chance, if you like, at a better life. So he gives her the opportunity. He, he's open-handed in this relationship. He says, hey, if that guy wants to do it, I'm cool with that. But if he doesn't, just, just know that by this lunchtime today, he'll be married one way or the other. <clears throat> and so there's a couple of things about that. I don't know if, for you girls, do you think... It would be refreshing to meet a guy who is more concerned about your well-being than what he can get from you. We're talking about Ruth as an example. We're talking about Boaz as an example here. And I just love the way that he is more concerned about Ruth's ultimate well-being than his own desires, his own sexual wants, his own whatever else. He just puts all that aside and he says, no, this is about Ruth. It's not about me. What about a guy who's willing to help you through tough times? I love the way that he steps up to the plate. And really, it was for Ruth to do this whole deal, but he steps in in her behalf. And again, imagine if there were guys around who rather than making the ladies do all the tough things, make the tough phone calls, face up to the tough decisions, have to deal with their family alone or the in-laws alone or whatever, but were just willing to step in and take some of the weight and protect a little bit, without expecting something in return. Because again, I think guys often can be guilty of, you know, I do this, but it's in, in order, there's an expectation that goes with that. And we see that Boaz is totally devoid of that motivation. What about going out with someone for a coffee? And coffee is just coffee, as we heard last week. But, you know, what about going out, you go out with someone for a coffee, and suddenly there's this, this, this smothering sense of ownership that comes with that. You know, you go out with someone and suddenly you feel like you're not allowed to talk to anyone anymore because of the evil eye. And there's been, no, there's been no, nothing said. It's just like we've just been out for coffee. And yet suddenly it's like it's all this stuff read into it. Boaz wasn't like that. Boaz was open-handed in this relationship. He was willing to take a step back if it was better for Ruth. He was, allow, he was ready for, to allow things to just go along without getting too involved too quickly, and that's why he was able to make some good decisions that we're going to see in a moment because he wasn't all caught up and driven by his hormones or driven by his romantic notions and all that sort of stuff. He was able to step back and give Ruth what she really needed at that particular time. So that's the first thing I just note is that Boaz was open-handed. The second thing I love about this is that Boaz is decisive. That morning, he goes straight down to the city gates was where it all happened, okay, um, Israelite cities were generally small and they were walled in. They didn't have big open um, plazas in the centre or anything. Everything sort of happened outside the front of the city gates. And so he waits until he sees this guy. And he just calls him straight over. He doesn't sort of start to walk over to him and... Uh, uh, nice day, isn't it? And just, he, just, he just kind of calls the guy. He goes, we've got some business to do. So he sits him down. He gets 10 guys over. He says, look, we've got a transaction that needs to be sorted out. And he's straight into it. And I just, I just love that. I just think that's, that's really awesome doesn't waste any time in dealing with the other guy. He just gets straight at it. Now, it might not have been the most comfortable thing to do. 
Again, we don't know where Boaz stood in the pecking order in terms of this other guy compared to him, etc. But he was willing to step up and do something immediately because something needed to be done immediately. At the end of the day, there were two ladies who were living on the breadline and the longer that he took to deal with this thing, the longer they were going to suffer. And so he doesn't mess around, he just gets straight on with it. <clears throat> now, the fact that he even did that is a testament to his character. Why even risk approaching the other guy? Again, you know, it says, spoke last week about what could have possibly happened with this situation. You end up with a young lady in your bed, um, you know, out of the blue. A lot of guys will see that as straight as a gift from God right there. But he was pure in the way he dealt with it. But he continued to be pure in that, that he actually approaches the guy. He makes the other guy known to Ruth. And then he says, we've got to deal with this situation. He makes a decision. He doesn't just, let's just sweep it under the carpet, go with the flow, and hopefully everything will be all right. He didn't take that approach. He didn't want to risk, I think, the fact that, because Ruth was a catch. Ruth was getting a bit of a reputation around the place. She was, um, you know, Boaz talked about the fact that she was known as a noble woman in the town. And this other guy, you know, I believe he had some issues um, with Ruth. That's why he hadn't stepped in this point. You know, perhaps he was a bit bigoted, perhaps he was a prejudice, whatever else. Um, but for whatever reason, he hadn't yet cottoned on to who Ruth really was. But if things dragged out any longer, he might begin to hear the rumours. He might begin to take an interest. He might recognise she's a bit better looking than he thought she was or whatever. And he might begin to take an interest. So, so Boaz says, no, he's not interested now. I'm going to move right now. I'm going to make the most of it. And so he's intentional. He's purposeful. He's a man on a mission. And so for us, again, today, what about you? in decisions that need making in your life, in things that need to happen in your life, how purposeful are you? How decisive are you? Have you asked him or her out yet? Are you likely to? How long will it take? Will they still be there when you get round to it? You feel God perhaps encouraging you to, to start a business or something? Because this, you know, this, this is a picture, I guess, of... of broader issues of life. Most of us aren't going to be in a situation where we're looking at doing a business deal for a wife. Okay, but we need to look at the principles and how they apply in our everyday life. So maybe you're feeling that God's calling you to, do it, to, to start a business and you've been procrastinating for months and maybe the economic climate has changed in the, in the time that you've actually been thinking about, do I start this business? That's not the way to go. Once you're feeling that your decision is made, make it, do it. You want to talk to your boss about a raise? No time like the present. Do it. You want to talk to your friend about something you've noticed in their life that's not exactly helpful for them or perhaps for those that they're hanging around with. Don't put it off. Make a time. Do it. Do it now. Don't procrastinate. Procrastination. I mean, I've been guilty of this and it's something I always try to challenge myself on, but procrastination wastes a lot of time and even worse, it wastes a lot of energy. It's, it's stressful procrastinating. It's stressful putting off what you know you should be doing today until tomorrow and then the next day until the next day and so on and so forth. Get straight into it. Do something. When you do something, it clarifies the way forward. I think in doing something, Boaz was going to know by 12 o'clock that day what, where, where his life was heading from there. He was either still on the shelf and looking around or he was on the way to being a married man and having kids and the whole deal. But he wasn't going to die wondering because of his decisions that he made that morning. And I think, you know, I've said it many times in this pulpit, you know, you can't steer a parked car. And some of us just get, you know, the whole paralysis of analysis happening. We just, we just 
do I, don't I, do I, don't I, do I? And the fact is you will never know what to do when you're in that position. You've actually sometimes got to, just, you've got to take a step out. And I believe, I am so convinced that God in his goodness and his concern for you, that if you step out 180 degrees in the wrong direction, if you step out serious about discovering God's will for your life and living a life that, that pleases him and brings him honour, he will direct you back that extra 180 degrees around that you'll end up in the right direction. But while you're just standing there, you won't hear anything, you won't know anything, you won't have any indicators coming your way. It's just a neutral position. So step out, do something. If you head off in the wrong direction, God will direct you. So that's the second point. Not only was he open-handed, he was decisive. And thirdly, Boaz is an upfront guy. Like I said, he figures that honesty is the best policy. It would have been so easy to try and pull the wool over the eyes of this other guy. But he doesn't take that approach. He goes straight to him. And I love the, the forthrightness with which he um, just explains the situation. Let's see if I can quickly find it here. This piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi. Uh, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want it. You can make it official in the present. He gives him every opportunity. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't doesn't, um, give him half-truths. He just lays it all out there. This is exactly the situation that we're in. What are you going to do? Just lays it out. Let's him know. Doesn't bend the rules to suit himself or hide it. He has an understanding that it's better to get things out in the open and settled than to live your life looking over your shoulder. I was chatting to someone just yesterday and we're talking about a situation. We're out riding our bikes. Hannah, that's for you. Hannah always complains that I use bike riding illustrations when I preach. I mean, as if. (laughs) But we're out riding our bike the other day, Mark Williamson and myself, and and, uh, we're turning in this road. And Mark finds a mobile phone just lying on the side of the road. And coincidence of all coincidences, this mobile phone is exactly the same model as his mobile phone that's got a cracked screen. I mean, it must be God, right, just wanting to bless Mark with a new mobile phone. Anyway, I just really appreciate the, the way that he responded. He didn't cover it up. And he didn't try and talk, you know, he, he, he would bend the rules and try and justify keeping the phone, swapping the phone, maybe ringing the person, swapping the SIM card or doing some tricky thing like because after all it was on the road, it could have cracked when it landed on the road. But he just, he just rings the, there's a message in there, it says if his phone is found, please ring. So he rings, turns out it's some lady, I think she's up in the Brosser Valley somewhere and she dropped her daughter off at TAFE at Tea Tree Gully and she's coming round um, uh, one of the roads into McIntyre Road the, the phone which she's left on the boot of her car, can't imagine that ever happening, um, slides off and just sort of ends up near the traffic light. So <laughs> I know there's a lot of people in this room probably done that. Um, but so he finds the phone. This is like two days after the event. And he rings her up and she's just so excited. She drives down and picks the phone. She brings him all these gifts and stuff. I'm just thinking there's a reward in doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. You know, he, he may not have been better off for it, but it was the right thing to do. And it's always better to take that chance and live with a clear conscience than to, you know, imagine finding a wallet somewhere and you've just, um, you know, it's full of money and you just quickly go out and spend all the money and then your mate says, man, I've lost my wallet. Where are you? Oh, I don't know, mate. That's pretty bad, isn't it? You know, <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? 
It's always best to do the right thing. It's always best to be open and honest. It's the best policy. How many relationships have hit difficulties because there hasn't been openness and honesty up front? Having the truth at your disposal enables you to make informed choices and good choices about how you're going to proceed in any situation, and particularly in relationships. You know, you might not think it's a big deal, but your partner, you know, I'm not talking first date stuff here, but you know, perhaps you're thinking about a more permanent relationship, but she might like to know that you're not a virgin anymore. She might not like to know that you actually have quite a few kids spread over Adelaide. (laughs) She might like to know that there's a few little things crawling around in your body as a result of some of those interactions. You know, she might like to know that. You can keep it to yourself if you like and think you'll get away with it. But the reality is that if that relationship progresses it's going to be much harder to deal with down the track than it is to be up front and give her the opportunity to at least appreciate your honesty. Now that, you know, for some people that's not a deal breaker. Some some people say, well, hey, I'm not much better myself, whatever. But I'm just saying, openness and honesty in relationships is a great foundation to build from. Maybe you've started drinking again. I think your partner should probably know that. You could ask for some help together. Maybe I'm attracted to somebody at work and I don't know how to deal with it. Openness and honesty enables you to begin to make choices and put things into practice that will lead you forward as opposed to ignoring stuff, letting it get out of control and then coming back to bite you big time later on. Maybe it's dad... I smashed the front wheel of the car into the curb. I think we should probably get it checked out. Far better than just keep driving the thing until the wheel falls off. It's easier in the short term, perhaps. It seems easier. It's less risky, perhaps less embarrassing, perhaps less confronting to withhold truth. But it's always more dangerous in the long run. And I love the fact that Boaz is just up front, lays it out at great personal risk. I mean, here's this woman that he's taking a shine to. Uh, you know, it seems like they haven't spent a whole lot of time together, but he's aware of, of the, t- the type of woman that she is, and she would be an awesome lady to marry. And he just lays it all on the line by being truthful. But in being truthful, he ultimately um, has a relationship that is on a strong foundation that can't come back to bite him later on. Because you know, his whole reputation could be in the line if he took the wrong track on this particular relationship. And the fourth thing, and I think one of the most important things about Boaz, is just simply that he was clever. He had a plan. When I say clever, I don't mean, I'm not talking IQ clever, okay, because that's not the issue here. It's just that he was aware, okay, he had a strategy in place to protect Ruth, ultimately. It wasn't for his own ends that he does what he does, you know, does what he did here, but it's ultimately about protecting Ruth. See, where did he get with his openness? I mean, for a while there, it looked pretty hairy, didn't it? It's like, you know, there's this bit of land available, it's from Naomi, and go, oh, I'll buy it, straight up. Like, man, that's a bit of a kick in the guts right there, isn't it? He was probably hoping that the guy was saying, oh, I don't need any more land, you know, 
rich enough, whatever. But no, this guy's straight in. Oh, no, I'll take the land. And so right there, Boaz has got two opportunities. I mean, he can either carry through the plan or he can just roll over and die. Just play dead and just let things carry on from there. And I think sometimes we can be guilty of that. When it gets hard, we just give up. Oh, maybe it's not God's will or whatever. But no, he's committed. I love that. He he's, holds things openly enough. He thinks he knows God's will in his life. But he's holding it loosely. And I reckon as he's praying, as he's going down to the city that morning, the town that morning, he's probably praying, God, you know how much I'd love to marry this lady. It just seems all these circumstances, it just seems like you're in this. But I've got to protect myself by being open to the possibility that maybe you're not in it. Maybe I'm just part of the, the program to get you to hook up Ruth with this other guy. And so he's protecting himself, he's praying. But at the same time, he's not just going to roll over and, and play dead. He's got a plan. And I love this plan. You know, Christians so often are, are good people, but naive people. And Jesus said that we should be innocent as doves, yeah, but cunning or shrewd as serpents. And I think, you know, many Christians get themselves into trouble because it's too naive, particularly Christian young people, well, old people as well, but you know, just too naive, just not worldly wise, just too idealistic in the way that they approach life. And I just love the way that Boaz deals this situation. He's obviously a good reader of people. Again, he'd seen what had gone down and what hadn't gone down prior with this other guy. And I mean, he must have known that Naomi and Ruth were in town. I mean, there was a commotion when they came. Remember that. You know, Naomi's, oh, I've gone, I went away full. I've come back empty. Call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore. And there was a stir. And, 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 there's, and there's a reputation growing in the town about Ruth, this awesome daughter-in-law of Naomi's. She's such a noble woman in the way that she's looking after her mother-in-law. And so this guy cannot have been oblivious to all that. He must have been a party to what was going on. But for some reason, he totally ignores them. He leaves these two women who are on the verge of starving, he leaves them to someone else to take care of. And Boaz, while he was holding things open, I think he had an inkling about what this guy was really like. And he's going to play him in a minute. Because he thinks, this guy, I reckon he's got issues with prejudice. I reckon he doesn't like Moabites. That's why he hasn't taken Ruth into this scenario. Because we see that when he's talking to, Elimele- uh, to, to the other guy, he says, Ruth the Moabite. That's the first time we see Boaz refer to her as a Moabite. The first time he even refers to her cultural heritage. And so he's playing on, a pre- on the prejudice that's possibly there. He's playing on the possible fear that's there. He says, the widow of the dead guy. I mean, I can imagine, like, just imagine this, right? This is, as he's saying this, imagine... Imagine um, Boaz, he just teed up a few of the guys, you know, one guy says, okay, when I start saying the Moabite, and when I say the dead guy, what I want you to do is just go to that really creepy music on your iPhone, just hit play. <laughs> and, and you, if you can just rattle a few chains in the background and bang a door or something, you know, because this guy, is, he's obviously fearful of this, this cursed woman from Moab, because she's, she has to be cursed, she didn't have kids in 10 years of marriage, and, and her husband died. And in fact, everything she touches seems to have died. You know, her brother-in-law's dead. The father, you know, like, so he's obviously, you know, he's, he's a little bit res, got reservations about taking this woman into his family. And then to really seal the deal, 
He knows the guy's selfish. He knows he's a greedy man. And so he just mentions the fact that whatever you do here, because ideally, this guy would like to buy the land, include it into his own inheritance, his own, his own holdings. But the fact is that if he takes Ruth on board and they have a child, he gets nothing for his money. All he does is set them up. He pays for the inheritance, but he doesn't get to keep the inheritance because the inheritance becomes the, the, that of the child that they would have together because the first child would become Marlon's child. Okay, does that make sense? That's how the whole kinsman-redeemer things. And so in one awesome little move, Boaz, with one sentence, exposes prejudice, he exposes the fears of this guy, and he exposes his greed, and he confronts him with it, and the guy just totally backs down. He goes, no, I can't do that. That's just too much of a cost for me. I'm not willing to do that. He said, if you want to do it, if you want to touch this woman, you do it. And there and then, the whole situation is turned around. And again, I just think that there's an incredible level of wisdom and, and shrewdness involved there that I think we as Christians would be well to do, to, to, to take note of. Because, and again, not for selfish purposes, but in order to protect Ruth. Because imagine putting Ruth into that situation with a guy who doesn't love her, a guy who's not going to touch with a barge pole, and a guy who just is, is um, not interested at all in, in her well-being and the well-being of her family. That would be a disastrous situation. Yes, she might have a roof, roof, over, a roof over her head. <laughs> but that would be it, not too much else. And so I think we can learn some stuff there. Girls, again, you know, you might be getting to know a really nice, charming young guy, but most of them are on the surface. You actually want to know what's really going on. Like, like Boaz was able to really work out what was going on, in the life of this respectable, wealthy, successful businessman in the town. Probably, you know, most people liked him and thought he was a good guy, but Boaz had worked out what was really going on. And so we need to be able to work out what's really going on in the life of people. Because girls, if you just take things at face value, yes, he might appear charming on the outside, but if you could read his mind, maybe it's a bit like this. I don't really care about you. You're just something to do because I'm bored. And no one else better has come along. When I'm finished here, I can't wait to tell my mates. Imagine that sort of honesty. That would probably affect your decision as to how the night progresses, wouldn't it? As to whether you actually go home with that person or get in the car or whatever. If you could actually see that. But the fact is you can't see that. It's hidden. So you need to be wise in working out, how do I work out where people are really at? How do I work out if they've got my best interests at heart or if they're just after my body or whatever else? Or my money or an opportunity to get to meet someone else. There's a whole bunch of hidden agendas that people have that are not healthy and not have their best, best interests at heart. And so maybe some tests could be, you know, it wouldn't take too much effort to look around and maybe ask a few questions and say, well, this guy seems nice enough. But how many girlfriends has he had in the last six months? And how did he treat them? And how, what are they looking like right now? Are they just like a blubbering mess? Is it just this trail of shipwrecks in his past? Or not? Or has he conducted himself well? Maybe it's, I'm happy to go out with him as long as someone else is around. Oh, what? You won't go out unless we're alone? Hmm. Maybe there's an agenda. Maybe it's, will he honour your no in the little things? Like, slow down, you're driving too fast. 
Well, don't speak that way about my friends. You know, just, just honouring the little no's, the things that are seemingly smaller issues, maybe you honour other no's that you might want to put into place, and I would suggest you do. Maybe if things proceed really quick and go... And it's like, no, I'm saving myself for marriage. You want a person that can honour that in your life. For those that are... And that's, you know, we're talking about perhaps young people there. But for those that are more serious, maybe that's just, that's just the initial stages of a relationship, and I know things travel pretty fast these days, but maybe for those that have been a little bit more involved in the relationship and are, are thinking about a life together, thinking about marriage, you want to ask some questions like, what are their goals in life? What are their priorities? What's their purpose? Or what do they say are their goals, their priorities and their purpose? And how does that match up with what they actually do? How they actually live? Because if it's, anyone can say stuff that sounds really good, yeah, I'm a family man, can't wait to have kids, you know, but <laughs> kicking kids as he walks past them or whatever. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that people will say in the early, in the early stages of a relationship. That's as good as it gets, girls, by the way, or guys. It doesn't generally get better after marriage if you start on the wrong foundation. I mean, I think marriage should go from strength to strength to strength. But if you enter marriage thinking, yes, everything they've said is true and, you know, I'll change him when we get married or I'll change her when we get married, man, it's downhill from there. You cannot guarantee that stuff. You can't bank on that. So it would be helpful to know what are the priorities in that person. I remember Sally Ann and I, before we got married, I, I didn't know what God had for me, but I knew that God had something for me in terms of a ministry. And the only way I could sort of articulate that to Sally Ann in terms of getting some idea of whether she was um, committed to whatever God wanted for me was to say, if, if God made me go to Africa or China and we were married, would you do that? Or would you not be able to leave your family? And that was just like a conversation we had. And Sally Ann said, yeah, I could do that. You know, so like I said, it hasn't come to pass. But it, for me, it was one way of finding, because if, that was a non-negotiable for me. If Sally Ann said, no way, I'm not leaving Adelaide. I'm not, you know, I'm not leaving my career. I'm not this, that, whatever else. That would cause me to seriously, as much as I liked her, in terms of what I felt God had for my life, that would make things non-negotiable. It would make it a no-go zone in terms of that relationship. So don't go into a relationship thinking you'll change people. Anything you get beyond that is a bonus. But we, you owe it to yourselves to find out about people. You owe it to yourselves to try and read people. Not to be critical and cynical and miserable and all that sort of stuff, but really... I think so often we end up critical and miserable and cynical because we just do dumb things. We don't weigh things up properly. And so we get into relationships that we, should, that we could quite easily avoid if we just asked a few questions and made a few observations. And we could save ourselves a whole bunch of pain. And I just love the way that Boaz did that. You know, just asked, mentioned a few, silly th- a, few, a few little things that totally turned the chain of events. And so maybe there's some things that we can be doing in our life where we can get a little bit more clever, a little bit wiser, a little bit shrewder, and we can, set our, we can change our course, which is possibly one on just, you know, we're headed for heartache. We're headed for pain. We're headed for suffering. We're headed for bankruptcy. We're heading for whatever. Because you can't just believe everything everyone tells you. You know, every person's got a deal. You, oh, I've got a deal for you. You know, give me your money, I'll make you a rich man overnight. Oh, you've got to buy this house, it's awesome, whatever. You know, we can, we can do our homework and make wise decisions and live in the benefit of that. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? 
Excellent. So Boaz, he was a man who was open-handed in terms of the way he dealt relationally with people. He was a man who was decisive. He didn't muck around. He knew that things needed to be done, decisions needed to be made, and the sooner the better. Don't procrastinate. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. He was a man who was upfront. Honesty always is the best policy. Yes, it can, at the time it can be risky. It can be frightening. It can leave you open to criticism or you can feel exposed. Maybe, maybe in terms of a business situation, it, it, it might not seem like the wisest thing to do. But it's better than living, having to look over your shoulder for what's going to come back to bite you later on. And be wise. Don't be naive. Be shrewd. Ask the right questions. Make observations in order that you can live a life that is a life of blessing. We see that Boaz took Ruth into his household. And I love the fact that in him accepting her, the whole township rejoiced. The whole township it says it is shouting out blessings. May you be like Leah and Rachel who established the house of Israel. You know, like she's gone from being an outsider to now being compared with Rachel and Leah who were the founding mothers of Israel. She went from being outside to inside because of Boaz's acceptance of her. It's an awesome testimony. You know, if we take it a little bit further, just in closing, in that story, we are Ruth. We are Ruth, every one of us. Guys and girls, we are Ruth. Ruth was a woman who was a foreigner in a strange land. She didn't belong there. She was rejected at many levels. She didn't fit in. She was out of relationship. She'd come out of a, 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 um, an idolatrous, ungodly place. And every one of us can identify with that at some level. You know, the Bible says that without Christ, we are without hope and without God in the world. We are aliens. We are outside of the blessings of God. You know, even in the Old Testament temple, um, if you were a a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, a non-Israelite person, you could only go so far in. You couldn't even get right into the presence of God as it was in in the temple days. You were excluded on pain of death. If you tried to press in, you could be killed for that insolence. And yet Jesus has become our Boaz. As awesome as, as an example and as a guy Boaz is, and like I said, I've just enjoyed hearing about his life unpacked and some of the things we can learn. He's just, like the rest of us, a shattered image of the glory of God. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is an awesome and a perfect redeemer. He is there for every one of us. As Boaz went beyond himself, as he put aside what was best for him and what was most convenient for him and paid a price to bring Ruth into his family. So too, Jesus has already done that on our behalf. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. God bless.